Amen. You may be seated. Well, this morning, I want to go ahead and dismiss the youth group if they're in here. That's uh, 6th or 12th grade. They'll head upstairs. And Also, I just want to just give a quick reminder to parents. Uh, first of all, I believe uh, come to church, it's about the family. We have uh, classes for every age group at the 11 o'clock service. You're welcome to put your kids in there, be with their peers, but you're also welcome as a family to keep your family unit together. Um, but we just do ask. Because of the nature of this room, that uh, when you're, if you decide to keep your infant or whatever in here, and they begin to act up a little bit, yes, we hear them. Okay? Let's just get the, the cat out of the bag. So just please, if they start to act up a little bit, we have a room right there for you to go through, a quiet room. You can go in there. There's a screen. You can hear if you need to step out in the foyer for a bit to get them under control. Please do that. Um, it's a, It's hard to speak when... Everybody ignores the elephant in the room, okay? Pastor Jay hates kids. That's what you're thinking. I love kids. I have grandkids. We get it. But please, 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 just help us out. I'm glad they're in here. We provide places for you uh, to step out with them. Uh, use those facilities that we provide and just help us, okay? Enough said? Amen. I want to start out this morning and uh, just begin by telling you an interesting story that was uh, printed in the Nashville newspaper. And the, the name of the article read this way, a woman named Hope, think about this, a woman named Hope pulled a man from, Chile, uh, from the Chile Harbor waters after watching him drive his car off the bank in an apparent suicide attempt. Hope Phyllis, a 38-year-old lady, said Monday, she was sitting in her car with her husband and son on a Sunday afternoon when she saw the man drive down Riverside Drive into Wolf, uh, Wolf River Harbor. Drove his car right in. Philip said she saw the man climb on top of the sinking car. His face was, was like, I'm so desperate, please help me. All I could do was run into the water, she said. Philip said, she swam toward the man who was about 20 and used a tree branch to pull him toward the bank. Her husband helped drag him onto the, uh, out of the water. The man said he was a student at the University of Tennessee. She said he kept telling us he wasn't worth anything. And I said, you are worth something. You're here, aren't you? Then he asked my name, and I said, Hope. And he said, what's your name? And he repeated it twice. He had a smile on his face. He, you knew that he didn't want to die now, and the police took him uh, to the, the local hospital for help. Now, as born-again uh, born disciples of Jesus, our hope is not in a lady with the last name of Phyllis, is it? Our hope is in him, is in Jesus. Now, I want you to picture yourself, if you would. I, um, first service, I said this. Uh, first of all, if you're in here this morning and you are a, a believer, I, I want you, you a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, I want you to picture yourself in this circumstance. If you're here this morning and you have not surrendered your heart to the Lord Jesus yet, this may ring a little bit more true to you, but if you are a believer and have more some years, just picture yourself 
in, in this situation. Um, you're, picture yourself drowning in the sea of sin, going under in an ocean of regret, sinking swiftly in the deep waters of guilt. Remember those days? I do. And what did God do and what does God uh, do for us? He dives in to rescue us and he gives us hope. God doesn't need a tree branch though, does he? Doesn't need a tree branch to pull us out. God gives us hope when we live in those circumstances in the world. And not only does he save us, which is the most awesome thing in all the world, amen, saves us from our sin. Not only does he save us, he then gives us a promise of his return. We call it the blessed hope in the church. A promise given by angels after Jesus ascended into heaven. Okay, there's other places to talk about the blessed hope, but but this one, I believe, is one of the most vivid and real pictures of the promise that Jesus gives of the hope of his return. How many of you think you should return right now? I'm ready, right? Acts chapter 1. I have it for you. Verses 9 and 11. After he said this, this is Jesus. After Jesus had given them instructions to, uh, instructions to wait for the Holy Spirit, and you will be my witnesses. He gives them all these instructions. He's been he, he's been with them for 33 years, right? He uh, he gave an example how to love and serve. He did all those all those things. He went to the cross willingly. He gave his life, resurrected from the dead. And the Bible says he spent 40 days uh, with the disciples, right? So all this time has taken place. He's given them final instructions. And then we have this. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. You guys, you really need to picture this. We can't just glaze over it and read through it. Uh, It's easy for us because we weren't there. Okay, okay, this happened. But I want you to put yourself on the Mount of Olives. Everybody close your eyes. Picture yourself on the Mount of Olives right now. You've been with Jesus. He's been resurrected. You've seen all these miracles. And now he just disappears into the sky. The first service I said, beam me up, Scotty. He's gone. Now, in our day, in our technology, you know, we think of helicopters pulling somebody up and all the different things, you know, we can rationalize it maybe a little bit more, even though it's it's still a, an incredible thing that took place. In their days, there were no airplanes, there were nothing. Jesus just goes up. Are you, are you with me? He was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently upon up, up into the sky, As he was going, you think? You would have been intently looking while... Are you with me? So they're not just like, well, okay, let's go to lunch. They're like, Jesus just went into the sky. Did you see that? This is a big deal, church. This is a big deal. Did you see that? He, He just went that way. 
when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Jesus just goes up. All of a sudden, now there's two angels standing next to them. They're like, That's what's really going on here, okay? It's not, we just read over it. Oh, what a nice little picture of Jesus sending into heaven. And then these two angels appear, and everybody's just kumbaya. No, they're not. They're like, Jesus went in the air. Now these two cats are standing here, angels dressed in white. What's happening? That's what's taking place. And if you were there, you can't tell me that's what you wouldn't be doing. I would be. And then they decide, they decide to speak to them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? Why do you think we stand here looking into the sky? Am I crazy or not? That may be natural for you two, but not for us. And then they said, this same Jesus, okay, the one and only Jesus, the same Jesus, the one that walked the earth, the one that gave his life, the one that rose from the dead, the one that performed all the miracles, they're telling them, it's going to be the same Jesus. It's not one that we're going to manufacture. It's not one that we're going to create years and years from now in other religions and all these different things that the world tries to teach us. These angels are telling us right now that same Jesus, the same one, the same one, okay? And they're not going to change him. The same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven, where Jesus said he's going to prepare a place for you, by the way, who's been taken into heaven, going to come back in the same way you see him go into heaven. There is a little discrepancy with that, though. Okay, that Jesus, the first time he came, we know he came, a a baby born of a virgin, right? He was raised, humbled himself to serve man to give his life. We do know that Jesus is going to come in the same way as in he's coming uh, from from the clouds, right? He's going to ascend that way. But he's not just going to be, you know, as he left. This time, the Bible describes him coming back on a white horse with fire in his eyes. So there's a little discrepancy there. What side are you going to be on is what's important, right? So this question, this question comes into play if you are truly a born-again disciple of Jesus this morning. If you're not a born-again disciple of Jesus this morning and you're you're here, we're glad you're here. Today's your day. You're going to be a born-again disciple of Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name. Okay, but if you are... And you're very interested in all this, these things that are happening as a born-again disciple. Here's the question. How then should you or how then should we live as we anticipate his return? I guess another question comes out of that. Are you anticipating his return? Are you? So the Bible says, which we're going to see in a few weeks ahead, the Bible says it's going to happen like a twinkling of an eye, right? There's certain things that take place. We'll get to that, but you get the gist of it. How then should we live as we anticipate his, his return? Do you think that's a good question this morning? This question is addressed by Paul as the Holy Spirit 
inspires him to write to the church in Thessalonica. In every chapter, there is a mention of the Lord's return in 1 Thessalonians, in which we find practical instructions for living out our lives to draw others to Jesus. Right? As a born-again disciple, that's your first your first priority, right? To draw others to Jesus, not draw others to yourself, not to draw others to look how religious I am. Your first priority as a born-again disciple of Jesus is to draw others to Jesus, who is King of kings, Lord of lords, and Lord of your life, right? Draw others to Jesus is your first priority, and to please Him, right? We're going to be reading from 1 Thessalonians this morning, and we're going to begin this study through through this book in the next uh, few weeks. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you so much for this time this morning. Thankful that you are Lord of Lords. We're thankful that we can come as a fellowship, the body of believers, to learn, to grow. Lord, just as the early church did, to, to stand and look intently at the Word, to be amazed, Lord, to be challenged that you are a living, breathing God and you have so much for each and every one of us. May we be in awe and in in anticipation of what you're going to do in each one of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. So this morning, we're going to begin this study by looking at the background information of this book. That's 1 Thessalonians. We're going to begin by reading 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1. Okay? Chapter 1, verse 1, and the NIV reads this way. Paul, Silas, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. So Paul is beginning this letter, this book, and he's writing and he's writing of telling who's with him and an encouragement. Now I want to read to you 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1 out of the Message Bible that Eugene Peterson uh, was responsible for for writing before his death as he was led by the Spirit. I want you to listen to the modern language that is put in to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1. He writes this, I, Paul, together here with Silas and Timothy, send greetings to the church at Thessalonica. Christians assembled by God the Father and by the Master, Jesus Christ. God's amazing grace be with you. God's robust peace. Doesn't that really speak to our language right there, to who we are today? I I just love that. God's amazing grace be with you. He's telling these Thessalonians, and he's telling us as well. May God's amazing grace be with you, and may you have robust peace. I like peace in my life. How about you? I like peace. Peace. You picture peace, right? Hanging in a, and what do they call those things you put between two trees? Hanging in a, in a hammock, right? With your favorite beverage, cool breeze, book, and taking a nap, right? That is a picture of peace. I would call that robust peace, Right? And then you fall out of the hammock, the neighbor's dog starts barking, the wife wants to get back to work, and what do you do? You lose your peace. 
is, is writing as he begins to encourage. So we're going to break down, as I said, we're going to look a little bit of the background information on this book as we begin to study, because it's important that we understand everything that's going on so we can put all the pieces in place as we go through it. So the author of this book is who? I asked the first service, what do you, who do you say it is? Who? No, it's God. God is the author of this book. God is the author of this book. Do you hear me? God is the one that inspired everyone to write this book. He is the author. How do you think you get 66 books in, in the Bible that, that, that go out together, that make full sense over the time that it took and the different people that God used? Because there is a God and you're not Him. God, and I know many people say, well, this canon was put together by, by men many years ago who sat down and decided what was going to go in this book. Yes, that is true, but guess who was inspiring them to do it? He, you know, he's a great big God. If he can speak things into existence by the word of his mouth, if he can stop uh, the sun, the earth from spinning, right, uh, for a day so a battle can be won, if he can part the Red Sea, if he can do all those things, don't you think he can make sure he has in this book what he wants in this book? So many debates and so many things that people do over the Bible are so irrelevant to me. I just want to say, are you winning people to the Lord or are you just arguing to argue? Go out and win people for the Lord and read the Word of God and apply it and quit debating and arguing over pointless things. Jesus didn't say, go and be my debaters in all the world and argue as much as you can for the sake of the Bible. Go and be my witnesses in all Jerusalem, Judea, and all the outer ends of the world for my namesake. Yes, the Bible's fun. Yes, it's fun to debate and talk about things with friends, but not to the point where you lose people. When we all get to heaven, God's going to straighten it all out, right? It's His living, breathing Word of God given for correction, right? For, uh, for spiritual growth, to know who God is. Now, that was a whole other sermon. So God is the author of this book. First Thessalonians. Now, you can say Paul because Paul... It's the servant, okay? Paul is a servant of God. Paul is a servant inspired to write, right? Paul is a servant inspired by the Holy Spirit to write what God wanted him to write. So he is the author in that sense. And he is a servant. Of, uh, Paul was formerly known as Saul of Tarsus, right? Now, Paul... Uh, Excuse me, Saul of Tarsus, before he became known as Paul, he had a great zeal to persecute the people of this new sect. That's what it was called back in his time. It was a, it was a sect. It was this group of crazy people. This sect. 
They're not, they're not going to the Jewish synagogue anymore. They don't belong to some of these pagan idols and different things over here. So this is this sect. This is this group of people. That's who they were, you guys. They were a small group of people, and they were called the sect, or they were called the way. It wasn't until Antioch that we read that they were first called Christians. When they were first called Christians, it was to mock them and make fun of them, by the way. Did you know that? It wasn't because, oh, look how endearing. Look at these Christ followers. Let us call them Christians. No, they called them, they were calling them a name. Look at those Christians, those Christ people, the sect. Those people are crazy. That's true. That's why they started calling them that. Now, I don't try to use the word Christian anymore It's as I speak to people. Well, you're a pastor. You're supposed to say Christian. The reason I don't is because I think it takes longer to explain what kind of a Christian I am today in this world versus what it used to mean. There's a lot of people that say they're Christians and they don't believe in anything that I believe in, but when I say I'm a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, that defines who I am. Okay, that's, that's the difference. That's why in our culture, in our day and age, you, if you say you're Christian, you could be lumped in with a lot of different people that don't even believe the same thing anymore. So Saul of Tarsus, he was persecuting the church. He had, uh, he had his Damascus Road experience. He had this zeal to persecute where his zeal to persecute Christians turned to zeal to share the message of hope and faith in Jesus. So he flip-flopped. He has a zeal to kill and destroy Christians, the sect, the way, right? Because he was a Pharisee, he was a religious man. He grew up, and this is what he wanted to do. He was present at Stephen's stoning when, they, when we had the first recorded martyr. He was present there giving his approval, and then he had letters from the synagogue leaders to go out and bring these people back to persecute them. He had a zeal for what he believed in. But then he has a Damascus Road experience where he meets Jesus, and everything changes, doesn't it? How many of you know when you truly meet Jesus, everything changes? If it doesn't change, you have not met him. You see, his zeal changed. He went from persecution to to spreading the message of hope and faith in Jesus in such a way that it would cost him his life later on. Why would he do that? Because of the resurrected Jesus, because, because of the Holy Spirit in him, he had seen one extreme to another, and he knew what he wanted to live for. So Paul, he went on to be known as the Apostle of the Gentiles. That's what he was called to do. Gentiles are are non-Jewish people. If you're not a Jew, you're a Gentile. Sorry to break that to you if you didn't know. It's going to be okay. God still loves you. Okay, so Paul became known as the Apostle to the Gentiles and uh, would be the servant to write half of the books in the New Testament. Okay, we know he's joined by his his two brothers in the Lord, Silas and Timothy. When he's writing this, they are with him at the time. Sometimes he was with one of them, sometimes both of them. But at this time, he's writing, he's sending a greeting 
from his two brothers that are with him, Silas and Timothy. Did you know if you were a born-again disciple of Jesus, if you are a believer, everyone in this room is your brother and sister? Does that scare some of you? We are. We're brothers and sisters. We're brothers and sisters in the Lord. We may not be biologically connected in any way with our DNA, but spiritually, in our DNA spiritually, we are brothers and sisters. And you better learn to start to like each other because eternity, how many know eternity is a long time? And that brother and sister you may not be too fond of may be your neighbor in heaven. We're family, aren't we? Just this week I was reminded by a lady who attends our church who was uh, going through some rough times, lost a loved one recently, and, you know, the realization that she was the, the last in the family. Mothers, uncles, everybody, everybody, she was the last in her family. She, she, rightly so, a little upset, wouldn't you be? No one left in her biological family who could help her in, in times of need or just, you know, be part of that family. And she was expressing this to me, and she was dealing with an issue, and and somebody in the church was able to help her. And she said the church family uh, was able to help her. And and I said this to her. I said, that's right, sister. We're all family. We love you. Because that's what the family does. That's why belonging to a home group, a life group, getting involved more than Sunday morning, getting involved with each other's lives, knowing your brother and sister in the Lord, getting involved, sharing your life, laughing together, crying together, eating together, all those things, that's what the church is. That's the family. If you're coming on a Sunday and that's the only time you're coming, you're not getting connected, I feel sorry for you because you are missing out. I've been a believer coming up on 30 years now. I feel sorry for you because this is what the church is about. We need each other. So these two brothers in the Lord are with Paul as he travels and ministers. We know that Silas is identified as a prophet in Acts chapter 15, who was uh, mistreated and imprisoned with Paul when they went to Philippi in Acts chapter 16. He was with Paul when the church was started here in Thessalonica. I want you to look at Acts chapter 17 again, or excuse me, Acts chapter 17, verse 1 and 4. We'll get back to verse 5 in a minute. It says this, when they, these these uh, two, uh, Paul and Silas, when they had passed through Amphibolus and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As his custom, what well, as his custom was, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Christ, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and not a few prominent women. So, we have Paul and Silas, these two brothers, ministering together. They're in Thessalonica. They are doing a church plant. And God begins to bless it. And then we have the young Timothy, He traveled with Paul often and is mentioned in many of Paul's letters. 
He was also in prison for his faith. And he had visited uh, Thessalonica as well. We're going to see that as we go through this book. So we have these three, these three brothers in the Lord. They have invested their own time and energy as inspired by the Holy Spirit. Always remember that. They're inspired by the Holy Spirit. They're not doing these things on their own. With this group of believers, they're down there investing their time, their energy, with this group of believers, the church in the city of Thessalonica. And I want us to look at this city in the beginning, at the beginning of this church plant. It's very important for us. We understand who these three are. We understand who, who inspired them to go. Now I want us to look at why they went. Look at this city of, of Thessalonica. It was the capital and the largest city of the Roman province of Macedonia, which is Greece today. How many of you know that's a very, very pretty place? If I said to you, each one of you in here today, that I would pay and fly you over for a week's paid vacation in Greece, who would say no? Ah, I got you. Uh, yeah, one person would say no. I won't say who it is. But the Mediterranean, beautiful, beautiful place, right? Beautiful weather. The wind doesn't blow there, right? Beautiful. I don't think it snows there. Beautiful place. This city is, is pictured, you can just picture that. It, it was located on, on the Ignitation, it's a hard word to say, way, which is basically uh, Highway 15 going through it, okay? It was a major road that connected uh, Rome to the eastern provenance of their empire. So this road coming from Rome goes right through Thessalonica and it goes out. So it's a trade route. A lot of truckers on this road coming through. I, I love truckers. They, those guys are awesome. I don't know how they do what they do. But but this main road, and it lies on the coast of the Aegean Sea. This city, because of where it is, the boats coming in and out, they have a trade route, people passing in and through. This city served as a center for trade and commerce. So it's a big city. There's a lot happening in this city. Because of this, there were several cults there, different religious beliefs. One of the biggest ones was uh, the god of wine, Dionysus, the god of wine. Uh, I tried to study this out to find out some of their beliefs and different things. It was so secretive, they still don't really know some of the things that they practiced in their temples and different things. They just were mainly known as, as the, uh, to serve the god of wine. So whatever goes into that. And then there was a cult, uh, a Serapis. And this was a sun god. And all these were very active in the city as well as the worship uh, of Caesar, right? The Roman uh, Caesar, was. they had this temple there in Thessalonica, this temple where they would worship Caesar in, in his honor. So this big temple... All these things going on in, in this city as far as religion goes. Idols, temples, different things you do to win favor with whatever little G God you were worshiping. Also in this city, there was a Roman gymnasium, which to us, we would say, well, what's the big deal with that? We have gyms all over our city, right? 
Why, I really don't know. I can't believe you guys didn't say amen. Is that right, Ryan? I work out. Eating is working out. It's a big deal to mention this because a gymnasium, it's not like we have here. I mean, to have a Roman gymnasium in your city, that's a big deal. A lot of time and effort went into that. That means they would host certain games and certain things would take place. It would draw more people to the city. They also had a stadium built there, which they would entertain in various different ways, the way the Romans did. So it was a happening place. Excuse me, I have a little allergies going on right now. The point to this is there was nothing lacking in this city as far as materialism. You could worship whatever little G-God you wanted. You could find pretty much anything you wanted to buy. There was sex trade, all kinds of different trades, different things going on in this city. Sounds like most cities in the U.S. today or around the world, doesn't it? Paul, Silas, and Timothy, well, Paul and Silas originally, inspired by the Holy Spirit, went there to plant a church. And now Paul is writing a letter to encourage them, which we'll talk about here in a little bit. Because it was a city that needed Jesus. Now, the church was established when Paul and Silas arrived, as we saw in Acts chapter 17. But it wasn't without some turmoil. Have you guys ever gone out to do something and it's just gone perfectly? Right? Isn't that the way life works? Everything's perfect. It's not the case. We're going to pick back up in Acts chapter 17 where we have Paul and Silas. They're in Thessalonia. They're there planting this church. We just read the opening part is when they came. Let's go back to verse 5. So they're, like we just read, they're winning people to the Lord. Things are happening. And then it says in verse 5, but the Jews were jealous. Let me me, uh, break that down a little bit better. The religious people were jealous. You're stealing sheep from me. You're stealing sheep, right? They're jealous. They were were religious. The Jewish people in the synagogue, the Jewish people here, they were jealous. It's not because... They weren't happy to see, man, This look at this guy. These guys came and his life was a mess and he's found Jesus and things are changing in his life. Uh, we should be happy for him. No, we're jealous because now he's not coming to our church anymore and he's over here and, and his life has changed. They became jealous. That is pathetic. I'm going to call it like it is. It's pathetic. But the Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace. formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. So they get these guys to start a riot, probably saying bad things about Paul and Silas and this church and what's happening and all these different things. So they get these guys going. They get this mob mentality going. They get a riot going. They weren't happy. So we're going to change things through a riot, right? So they get this this whole thing, this whole uproar going in the city, this whole turmoil. 
They rushed to Jason's house. Now Jason is a brother in the Lord, right? He's obviously been hanging out. They've obviously seen uh, a change in Jason's life. He's a believer. Uh, Paul and Silas were probably staying at his house. I don't know, but for some reason, Jason was their target. We're going to go there to find these two. They rushed to Jason's house to search for Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. Because they, you know, they wanted to bring them out to the crowd so they could thank them, you know, and give them a nice meal and take care of them. Doesn't say why they wanted to bring them out to the crowd, but I'm sure they were going to flog them and beat them. Who knows? But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the other brothers before the city officials. Um, which I find is interesting because they knew them, so they're not going to harm them. We're going to take them to the officials because this will make it all right. And they were shouting, these men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here. And Jason has welcomed them into his house. That scurvy dog. He let him in his house. They are all defying Caesar's decree, saying that there is another king called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into a turmoil. Then they made Jason and the others postpone and let them go. So what was accomplished? Nice day for a riot, I guess. They didn't find them. They made a point, though. Probably scared a lot of people that to shy away. But here's an awesome thing to remember. Despite its rocky beginning, it soon became a strong church, gaining, gaining a great reputation with mostly the Gentiles of the region. So from the context of this letter, which we're going to examine a little bit closer in the, in the weeks ahead, from the context of this letter, it becomes apparent that the Holy Spirit had a threefold purpose in mind as he guided Paul to write this, this letter to the believers in Thessalonica. Okay? So quickly, three of the purposes. It was to praise them for their steadfastness under persecution. So because of this persecution, because of this material world, because of all these things, trade, commerce, everything happening, all the different religions, these these small number of believers were being persecuted for their beliefs, being made fun of, being mocked, right? But Paul writes them, hang in there. God would tell each one of us today in our world as we see things changing rapidly concerning what we believe, hang in there. Hold firm. And the other thing, it was to instruct them concerning holy living, how to live. What, what is holy living? Well, holy living as a believer means you're better than everybody else. Good answer, TJ. None of us are better than anybody. Holy, word holy, we're going to look closely at that in the weeks to come as well. This word holy, it simply means separate. It means separate. So to be a holy living means that you have taken a stand, that you're going to say, hey, I'm going to be in the world, but not of the world. I'm going to be separate from all these things that are ungodly around me, and I'm going to live above them in a way that I'm going to be separate from them. I may slip and fall because we are in the world. We are flesh and spirit, wrestle all the time. But for the most part, we do our best 
to be and to live a holy life that pleases God. Anybody done that in a perfect way yet? Oh, put my hand down. And the other way was to correct any misunderstanding uh, as far as the Bible, what God teaches, especially regarding the second coming of our Lord Jesus. As I said earlier, every chapter ends with a reference to this second coming. And in chapter 4, Paul goes on in detail about the second coming. Talks about the rapture and all that kind of fun stuff. And we're going to get there. So here we are. Almost done. With such an emphasis on remaining steadfast in our faith under the pressure of this world and to live a life to draw people to Jesus and please Him, holy living, an appropriate theme for this book is this. How many of you want to know what it is? An appropriate theme for this book. I, I believe it's going to be one that's going to stick with you. Are you ready? Here it is. Soar like eagles, don't swim like ducks. We'll close with that. How many would, would you like me, how many of you would like me to explain that maybe just a little bit? <laughs> Gotta love spring. I had a dream this week. Now, most of the time I have a dream, I really don't remember them. I just know. Rarely I do remember them. Um, but I had a dream this week, and this dream, it was it was uh, almost like a vision. It was almost like one of those dreams where you feel like you're, you're kind of separate from your body kind of a thing. No, I don't do drugs. But it was, it was one of those dreams that you... You, re, you remember very vividly. You know what I mean? Anybody ever had those? And, and I, had this, I had this dream this week. And after the dream, I, I, was, I was told to sh share it with you all this morning. Now, I had the dream before I even began to, to study. I was still praying about what direction to go in. Uh, by the way, First Thessalonians, we were in the book First Thessalonians right before we shut down for a whole year. And we left it. I think we went a couple uh a verse is into it, but now we're back. The Lord has brought me back around to First Thessalonians. Uh, anyway, in, the, in this dream, in my dream, I, I saw an eagle soaring high above the earth, looking down, free to go wherever it desired. Okay? And it was, in the dream, it was almost like I was, uh, like an eagle myself, flying next to this eagle, and I've had the privilege and the honor to jump out of a perfectly good airplane. And, you know, when I made that jump, you know, looking, falling, and looking at the earth, you know, that's kind of what it felt like in this dream. It was so vivid. Saw an eagle soaring high above the earth, looking down free to go wherever, wherever it desired, swooping in for a meal, uh, resting high above in big trees, free to be everything God created it to be. How many of you would agree with me, when you think of freedom, you think of an eagle, right? Free to, to swoop in and, and take a fish out of a lake, right? Have you ever seen them do that? A few years ago, I was visiting my pastor in Port Townsend, Washington, and they had an article 
probably shouldn't tell you this, but I had an article. In the paper, some power company had decided they needed to move. You know how they make those man-made perches where the eagles are on them and the big nests? Well, for whatever reason, they had to move a few of those, the power company, so they were delicately trying to move the nest so they don't disturb too much. And, and they had this report. And they stated that when they went up to move, I'm talking about how an eagle swoops in for a mill, by the way. They stated how that when they went in to move the nest and the platform, they found countless, in the bottom of the nest, weave within the nest, countless animal pet collars in the nest. Don't let little Fifi out in the backyard. Now Pastor Jay hates dogs. But the picture of a big, powerful eagle, it really does give you a picture of freedom, doesn't it? And then I, before I say this, ducks are beautiful, ducks can fly, ducks have a purpose. I don't hate ducks. This is an analogy. This is a dream I believe the Lord gave me, and he wanted me to share it with you. So don't take it for what it's not. Just look at the analogy, okay? And then I saw ducks swimming in a, in a mucky pond with their heads below the, the dirty water looking for something to eat. They were dirty, wet, and cold. They looked like they were in bondage. No way to escape their miserable circumstance. I know they can fly. But you see the difference between an eagle and a duck? This is the, the, the vision, the dream that I had. After I woke up, I began to ask the Lord, what, what, what this dream, what does this dream mean? And because it's so vivid and I remembered, I recalled it so much, so I was just like, that, you know, the, I think the Lord's wanting to tell me something. And this is what he has told me to tell you this morning. After I, I received this and began to meditate and got on, I clearly, clearly, in almost an audible voice, the Lord said, I want you to tell the members of the Bridge Church this on Sunday. You ready? Some of you are like the eagle. You are free from the cares of this world. Free from a religious spirit, free from guilt and shame, free from materialism. You have found peace and rest in Jesus. And some of you are like the ducks, and the ducks represent those who are still living in the world looking for answers. You live with the guilt and shame from your past. You hurry about thinking that if you do enough, then you might be forgiven. What happiness you do find it is short-lived through all the stuff you can buy to fill your empty heart. You have no peace, no rest. This robust peace that, that I spoke about 
earlier, you can't even contemplate what that means. I want you to listen to what the Lord has for you this morning. It's found in Isaiah 40. Listen closely. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youth grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. Does that sound like a duck or an eagle? As we go through the book of 1 Thessalonians, I pray all of us will become like an eagle. A spiritual eagle, right? Putting your hope in the Lord to renew your strength. Putting your hope in Him, not in the things of this world. In Him. He's the one that's going to renew you. And I pray each of us will open up to what the Holy Spirit has has for us as we draw closer to Him. And to answer the question I asked each of you earlier, that is how we should live as we anticipate His return. I want to close with this song that we ended the worship set with called Thank You. As we sing it, just let the Holy Spirit speak to you. If you want to come down to the altar and just have a moment with the Lord, please do. You want to sit, kneel at your seat. Everyone, please stand with me this morning if you're able. Where are you with the Lord? Let's just think in this morning, this song is, is just right on target of what I'm talking about. If you're not a born-again disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, today is your day. What are you waiting for? Come up. Come out of that mucky pond. Quit looking for things, answers for what the world has. Jesus is the answer. God is the answer. He will renew your strength. You will soar like an eagle with the Lord Jesus Christ. If that's you this morning, don't leave here until you have accepted God. I, I want to pray with you. We come down at the end of the service. You can come right now during the song if you want. Don't worry about being embarrassed. I'm talking about eternity, and eternity matters. Let's just begin to sing, and then I'll come back and close.